Imagine a conversation where you simply ask the question, and then what? <clears throat> you might be speaking to a high school student who's about to graduate, and so you ask him, and then what? He says, well, I'm going to go to college and study hard to begin a career. And then what? Well, I'll find the right job, and hopefully I'll get married and have children. And then what? Well, I'll enjoy my family, and I'll advance in my career until I eventually retire. And then what? Well, after I retire, I hope to do some traveling and... Uh, watch my grandchildren grow up. And then what? Well, I guess then I'll die. And then what? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today. Help us to see your holiness, your justice, and your goodness, and your love. And most of all, your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Denying or suppressing this thought will not make it go away. We all have different responses to the reality that one day we will stand before God. In our passage, King Belshazzar in the residence of Babylon faced their earthly judgment day. And we're going to see many of our responses reflected in theirs as we unfold this passage, both before and after God showed up. So before God showed up, well, over two decades have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar died 23 years before God wrote on Belshazzar's wall. He was followed by a series of short-term kings until Nabonidus, who ruled for 17 years. He made Belshazzar a co-regent, and that's why we see in our story Belshazzar is described as the king of Babylon. Our story takes place in Babylon following Nebuchadnezzar' defeat and capture by the Medes and the Persians. Those armies were making their way toward Babylon. The fall of Babylon was imminent. So how do people respond when the shadow of judgment passes over them? The first response is only hinted at in our passage. It's the belief that humanity is sovereign, and so we don't need to fear God's judgment. It's a common attitude, especially among the young, that we are invincible. And we see this in the world's point of view of Nebuchadnezzar as described by Daniel in verses 18 and 19, when he says... O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would kill, he killed. 
Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Leave out the words, the Most High God, and you have Nebuchadnezzar's view of himself in chapter 4 and the world's view of him described here. He was sovereign and his kingdom was invincible. In their eyes, Nebuchadnezzar had overcome the Jewish God when he destroyed Jerusalem and took the valuable treasures of the temple. Belshazzar expressed the same sense of sovereignty when he sacrilegiously drank from those holy vessels. In their minds, there's no need to be concerned about God's judgment because humanity is sovereign, not God. In reality, God was very much involved. He controlled everything. Daniel said it directly, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship. No king gains power apart from God. God gives it to them. God gave Judah and Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of disciplining his chosen people when they had pursued false gods and abused one another. God's fingerprints were all over the activities in Babylon when Daniel rose to great power, when God brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace, and when God predicted through Nebuchadnezzar's first dream that Babylon would fall and be only the first of four kingdoms. See, humanity is not sovereign over God. God is sovereign over humanity. Today, many atheists put up billboards and write books declaring that God is a fictional character. They are not sovereign over God. Relativists who create God as they would like to see him are not sovereign over God. Religious people who trust in their own righteousness, like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all I get. Such religious people are not sovereign over God, telling him who and how to judge. We cannot allay our fears of God's judgment by convincing ourselves that we merit God's affirmation, by denying God's existence or fashioning him to someone who would never judge us. We are not sovereign over him. He is sovereign over us. We see four more responses in Belshazzar's actions and words. <clears throat> the Persian army had conquered the Babylonian armies. They controlled the entire nation except the capital city, and they were threatening it. So what was Belshazzar's response? He threw a party, a massive party. Verse 1, Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousands. 
The wine flowed freely. We can only imagine 1,000 inebriated revelers. Why throw a party when the army is at the gate? It's to create enough noise around them that they didn't have to face the fact that their destruction was impending. See, many of us keep from thinking about the final then what question by filling our lives so full of noise that we're able to keep that question far away from our minds. Another response is seen in the defilement of the cups taken from the temple, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Belshazzar had the audacity to call for the drinking vessel, the holy vessels from the holy temple that were meant for only the priest to drink from. His royal goblets weren't good enough. This action was about more than having the best wine glasses. It was about flaunting his power. It was an act of false bravado that gave him a false sense of security. He wanted to comfort himself with the delusion that he had power by remembering the glory days and displaying that. He had to live in the past because the present was so ominous. It's a tactic that many use to ward off the thoughts of divine, divine judgment. And then in verse 4, he goes a step further. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They praised their gods, not the god of the temple they had destroyed. Belshazzar and his fellow partners were hoping to ingratiate themselves to their false gods, perhaps as a last line of defense for Babylon. Their armies had been defeated. They were too weak. Perhaps their gods would come to their rescue. You see, they were willing to turn to anyone or anything except the one true God. Daniel had it right in verse 32, 23. You have praised the gods, silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, that God you have not honored. Where do we turn when the thoughts of God's judgment confront us? Some of us turn to religions whose gods are figments of our imagination. Some of us suppress the thoughts by filling our lives with noise or by following the old adage, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Others of us turn to our own self-sufficiency. None of these responses wards off the ultimate judgment of God. And we see this as the hand of God writes on the wall. 
None of these responses will wipe away the handwriting on the wall for any of us. That's why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 7, 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. He's saying it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why would he say that? Because at a funeral, we face reality. We face the question, and then what for me? At a party, it's not reality. It puts a reality out of our minds. It's a moment of fun and pleasure. But it does not consider eternity. Funerals we consider are eternity. And hopefully, hopefully, we will prepare for that moment. God then did show up. He showed up on the king's palace writing the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Once God showed up, all chaos ensued. Belshazzar collapsed emotionally because he rightly assumed this is probably not good news. Daniel 5 and 6. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He was afraid. And this should be the response of everyone who trusts in themselves and their own sovereignty. Even the prophet Isaiah was emotionally shattered when he saw God on his throne and he heard the cherubim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah's response was, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen his holiness and my unholiness. He was undone until a coal was taken from the altar of sacrifice and touched his lips, and he was forgiven. We should all shudder to think we will stand before a holy God unless our lives have been touched by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we've been forgiven. At this point, the mother queen appeared, verses 11 and 12, and said, There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit knowledge and the understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. He'll show the interpretation. 
See, the queen's mother, queen mother's response, the, the mother queen's response was to go back into the past. She knew about Daniel. She knew his God gave Daniel the wisdom. However, she attributed Daniel's wisdom to the gods. She couldn't break in her cultural belief of pluralism. All gods are equal. All gods are real. She trusted in them rather than the one true God, Daniel's God, who interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, who saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Despite all the evidence, she clung to the gods who were not gods. How many of us can't break from our cultural view of pluralism? You know, I've heard many Christians, many people who claim to be Christians say every religion is a way to God. Pluralism can't shake away from our culture because our culture judges us if we believe there is one way. When we say all religions are a way to God, we deny the cross. We deny the need for the cross, the need for our forgiveness that we can't earn, that someone else had to pay for. We deny Jesus' purpose for coming. We deny the extent of God's love for us. When we deny that the God the Son had to die for our sins, and as a result, we trust in empty religion, even empty Christianity, rather than in our life-giving Savior, and true Christianity. Belshazzar called for Daniel, and he offered him rewards, including the throne as third ruler over the kingdom. Daniel rejected the rewards, and then he contrasted Belshazzar with Nebuchadnezzar. Both were arrogant despots who placed themselves above God. But as we saw last week, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar until he acknowledged God's sovereignty, verse 21b, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Having been humiliated, Nebuchadnezzar repented and he honored God. Belshazzar was being humbled by the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar had every opportunity to repent like Nebuchadnezzar. 
Instead, his response is 21, seen in 29 and 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made to him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being 62 years old. Though he was warned about God's judgment, he was shown the example of Nebuchadnezzar's repentance and restoration. He refused to repent. Instead, he honored Daniel by giving him great reward, perhaps thinking that this would earn him points with God or appease God. You know, getting close to someone who is close to God doesn't get you close to God. It's one's personal faith in Jesus, not our grandparents or our parents or our best friend's faith. Belshazzar failed to repent of what he should have known was the sin of all sins, mocking God. And he and Babylon were judged that night. See, we've seen a number of ways that we should not respond to God's judgment. We have a positive response in Nebuchadnezzar's humility. And we have a model response in Daniel. Because Daniel was united with God, he wasn't afraid of any judgment. He was in the palace that night, knowing the enemy would soon overcome them, yet he was fearless and confident and bold. He eschewed any reward because he was passionate about communicating God's truth and not what he would get out of it. He had no agenda but God's. He eventually did accept the war reward when it was imposed on him, perhaps thinking that the conquering king would recognize his high position and his loyalty to foreign kings, and that would allow him a platform from which he could glorify God. And we're going to see that did happen. Daniel stood for truth, even if it could cost him his life. He didn't hold back from the unpopular warning of God's impending judgment. He proclaimed it loud and clear. As unpopular as this warning is today, we can't hold it back. It's essential in communicating the gospel. The gospel which says God loved us and created us to be one with him. But we broke that oneness because of our sin. It separated us from the, our holy God, our just God. It leads to God having to judge our sin. But he sent his son to take our sin so we could have a relationship with God. And so... We come into a relationship with God when we accept Jesus as our Savior. We're not going to accept him as our Savior unless we believe we need a Savior. And we're not going to believe we need a Savior unless we know we're in trouble and that God will judge our sin. Then we realize, who can save me? And God has provided that answer in sending his Son. Now, I'm not advocating that we stand on a street corner shouting out, God is going to judge you unless you believe in Jesus Christ. 
But it's a reality that we have to communicate in some way at the right time. See, Daniel didn't go around pronouncing God's judging you, God's judging you, God's judging you. No, Daniel built a, a relationship. He served. He cared for the city. And people knew that. And it was at the right time, God's timing, when he gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream and he wrote on the wall. It was God's timing that Daniel stepped forward, but in that message he did not hold back and said, God will judge you. It's a part of the gospel. We don't need to force the issue, but when God opens a heart to the gospel, the warning of divine judgment must be included in our gospel message. Most of us in the Western world like to think of God's love rather than his judgment. We prefer the message, God loves us, so he accepts everyone. When we say this, we ignore God's holiness and justice. A holy God cannot have a relationship with sin. A just God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. From an earthly perspective, God has a dilemma. He could stop being holy and just and accept sinners because he loves them. God's solution to the dilemma is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God does not want to condemn the world. He wants to save it. This is why he sent his son to bear the divine judgment we deserve. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God. Those who believe this are given eternal life. However, there's a different outcome if we reject God's love, seen in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's not received him as Savior. What's your response to the thought that God is our ultimate judge? If you're trusting Christ, you should have the confidence and boldness of Daniel. If not, I pray that you would consider Christ's love for you. As 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. Christ's love for you can cast out all of your fears if you would accept his love and trust him as Savior. That's a promise for every one of us. Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth for us, to bearing our sin, so that when we face the final judgment, you ask us to enter in to experience that eternal relationship for which we were created, be in union with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.